Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 14th, 2021, and it's over. Or it seems to be over, at least according to our president or your president, uh, Joseph Biden. Uh, he hails the great day as he sheds his mask in the Oval Office. We finally get to see how old he looks uh, and his lovely smile and his, his full face as opposed to his masked face. So uh, COVID seems to be uh, at least in retreat and decline. And America can get back to its more traditional business of thinking about itself, of figuring itself out. And I have the perfect guest to interpret America, both in a COVID and post-COVID world. Got an email a few weeks ago. I get a lot of these emails, people uh, promoting, pitching authors. And this one uh, seemed particularly interesting to me. Uh, a young or certainly younger than me author, Barrett Swanson. I hadn't heard of him, but he's won a lot of prizes. He has a new book out, Lost in Summerland. Uh, and what I was particularly interested in, in, in terms of at least of the pitch, uh, is that, the, that apparently Lost in Summerland encases big ideas and knotty questions into elegant, compact essays. Uh, traditional narratives, Swanson says, are ill-equipped to meet our moment. These sophisticated treaties, on the other hand, feel well-matched for a world characterized by self-delusion and collapsing truth. That's so quite dramatic. Uh, here's the book, Lost in Summerland, and here we have the author, Barrett Swanson. So, Barrett. Uh, I know you didn't write that. One of your publicists did, so I can't blame you on that stuff. But um, let's quickly go back to this or, or, or perhaps uh, to some of the um, the other stuff uh, that your publisher has given me. Uh, you've written in Lost in Summerland a personal quest to, across the United States to uncover what it means to be an American amid the swirl of our post-truth climate. It's a book of essays. Uh, is this accurate or is this hype? Well, I mean, there's a certain extent to which I think all uh, flat copy is a little bit hyperbolic. But uh, on the other hand, I do think that um, one of the tasks of this book is, is to begin thinking about some of the narratives that we tell ourselves as a culture and, and the ways in which those things affect us, not only politically, but also psychologically and emotionally. Uh, the book, uh, gosh, was probably an outgrowth of um, a certain, let's let's say, personal crisis in my mid twenties, um, having had some experiences with uh, addiction and depression, um, and I began to conceptualize that experience not so much as the aftereffect of some genetic misfortune, as depression often is, but as actually um, an inexorable consequence of living under certain cultural conditions and certain cultural narratives about what has meaning and what doesn't. And so as you know, the 20th century saw a lot of the, the traditionals by, uh, traditional narratives by which we might have found orientation in our lives, namely, go oh, God, truth and country, these sorts of things as traditional religion or, or political ideologies fell by the wayside. 
it, it seemed to me um, in the in the Obama and post Obama era that that people started taking out different narratives and and surrogate ideologies in order to make um, to find to find meaning in their lives. Uh, another uh, thing that I, I read suggests that um, the and and you su- suggested some of that in in the post Obama America and that the grand unifying narratives of splintered into competing storylines. What does that mean? And does that, um, does that connect with the fact that your book is a collection of essays? I mean, many of them actually published elsewhere, rather than a traditional uh, narrative, a nonfiction narrative, which most of the people appearing on this show have written a book about the Midwest or racism or inequality. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's an extent to which, well, the book was constructed um, uh, after the fact, after having written, um, I would say, a good majority of them. I think only two essays in the book were written um, once the the publisher decided to do it. Um, But I couldn't help but notice some of those uh, unifying themes across the, the the different topics. Yeah. Tell me about your name, Barrett. Uh, I, I, uh, uh, I, I'm putting it in bold here for those people just listening. Barrett Swanson. Um, it's, it's a delightfully ethereal name. It, it reminds me of the cover of the book. It's a very cheerful, optimistic name, isn't it? How come you got named that? Oh, gosh. Well, my, my father's name is Gary, and um, my mom wanted to call me Barry, and my dad didn't like the idea of our names uh, rhyming. Uh, so I believe that my mom got it from a movie, uh, Close Encounters with the Third Kind, if I'm remembering the title correctly. There, there's a child in, in that movie um, named Barrett, and that's, I mean, it's not a particularly, it's not pyrotechnically interesting, unfortunately. There's no grand legacy of, of my name. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I'd rather like it. I thought the book was really interesting in the way in that you're searching, it seems, for quote-unquote reality. You're obviously very well-versed in the French postmodernist tradition of Foucault and Derrida and all the others who question Baudrillard, question reality. And for you, America is a stage for that. Um, you go, for example, to Disaster City, and you imagine a, a simulated disaster. So I'm quoting you here in this section. It is late February, three weeks before the end of the world, and right now I lie entombed beneath nearly 16 tons of rubble. Um, the book itself is, uh, in some ways, it seems as if you are chasing reality, and you never quite find it. Is that fair? Well, sure, sure. I mean, Disaster City was it was an essay. Um, I was dispatched by Harper's Magazine to go uh, to Disaster City, which is a, a 52-acre training compound in College Station, Texas, where FEMA um, sends their first responder teams to basically anticipate every possible dis- disaster. It's a, it's a real carousel of woe. Um, mm-hmm. They do train derailments, building collapses, school shootings. Um, basically, any any nightmare scenario. But it's clearly um, it's the clearly the kind of thing that attracts your aesthetic or ontology. I mean, you also go to Noah's Ark Water Park in 
in in Wisconsin, which is the largest yeah. water park in the United States. You're attracted by simulated drama. Sure, sure. I mean, um, I, I, I would argue too that Noah's Ark was probably more chilling and frightening in, in some ways than Disaster City, but maybe that's a different question. But yes, I am. I'm interested in the extent to which um, reality reality is bound up with um, certain narratives that we're telling ourselves about what is real and what is unreal. And and I I would say that some of the epistemological crisis that we ourselves are facing in the United States is bound up with that idea. Um, without you know, I, I teach I teach school, and without sounding too professorial, um, you know, there's a, there's a I want you to sound thinking, professorial. Uh, all right, good. all right. Well, lecture I'll, me. I'll, I will aim for that rarefied diction, then, Andrew. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, there's a there's an there's an idea of um, by Wittgenstein, and I think the philosophical investigation, that, you know, a picture held us captive, and and by that. He meant that the the language that we use to describe the realities that we find ourselves often uh, draw the parameters around what kinds of emotional or intellectual experiences we're going to have in response to that. Um, and so, some of the fragmentation of of narrative, I mean, it 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 infects everything from you know the harebrained narratives of of QAnon to um, you know the ways in which the media has fractured um, across the last few decades, um, optimized or individualized news sources, et cetera. The, so I, I'm interested in the ways in which um, those narratives become invisible to us and um, that, that we grow a nerd to them in some sense. As Wittgenstein said, when language goes on holiday, um, which is, um, I always love that phrase. Uh, yeah. A few years ago, actually back in 2007, the, the Scottish writer, Andrew O'Hagan, he was reviewing uh, Delilo's Falling Man in a post 9-11 America. And it, and it was a wonderful piece, I thought, by Haig O'Hagan, suggesting that what happens to a writer when, again, quote unquote, reality, 9-11 overtakes the fiction of somebody like Delilo. And it seems to me as if the America that you're exploring is that world where, again, quote unquote, reality has somehow overtaken fiction writers, which probably explains why you, as a young man, you wanted to write novels. Now you're doing nonfiction, but nonfiction and fiction have become so hard to actually disentangle. Uh, certainly. And, uh, you know, I think it, it, the opposite would be true as well, which is to say, you know, fiction in certain, in a certain sense, infects um, our our view of reality, and 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 that manifests not only in some of the the sort of oh voguish literary uh, movements right now, things like autofiction. Um, but I think too, that sounds a bit vulgar. What is autofiction? Uh, well, autofiction uh, emerged, I believe, in the nineteen seventies in in France with a book whose name is failing me now, but. Um, writers like Sheila Hetty, Ben Lerner, Carl Uven Osgaard, um, Tao Lin, some, some current writers who are interested in blurring the line between uh, fiction and reality, um, autobiography and, and fiction. Um, and in, in some ways, I think it's mimetic of 
of you know the ways in which we um, explore selfhood online, the 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 porous border between our virtual and visceral selves. Um, so I think it's this idea, this 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 thin difference between those two types of of or two modes of of self. I think um, is something that we navigate every day. Uh, Barrett, you you write quite honestly about your. To, 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 to be euphemistic, your psychological ups and downs in your life. You're very... Oh, that, that's charitable, thanks. <laughs> uh, you're very autobiographical. You also write, I think, in some great detail and uh, emotionally about your, the, the ups and downs of your family, particularly your brother. It, it seems to me from reading the book that you're not really able to also separate uh, reality and the fiction of media. You say that um, wherever you are, if you're in a food court or a musician, uh, a, a museum or a, or, a, or a movie theater, you always imagine that catastrophe is about to hit. Your book is sort of littered with various kinds of catastrophes, personal and otherwise. Is this something that you consciously struggle with or do you think it's a feature of your generation? That everywhere you go, you think there's just about to be a 9-11 outrage or a mass shooting or another another episode, another chapter of COVID-19. Well, I, I do. I do. Let's see. I was I was born in 1985 and um, I believe CNN and the 24 hour news cycle really picked up in, in the late 70s. I think 79 was um, when C-SPAN or CNN um started taking off and so there's a way in which i think yeah there i am a product of the 24-hour news cycle i think generationally um you know the post 9 11 generation is is bound up with a sense of reality that um where the ordinary uh collides with the extraordinary um and you know the the essay to which you're referring is one called letter from a target rich environment in which part of my training as a university professor involved going to an active shooter training uh protocol and um i can think of of no better example of the ways in which the extraordinary and the banal are colliding right um and so i think that we're tutored as citizens of this country in in seeing um we're so relentlessly bombarded with images of cataclysm that that I think it goes beyond my own personal neuroses um, and 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 becomes a kind of cultural disposition. Um, yeah, it's interesting. You you know the book is is really excellent. I I think everyone needs to read it. Uh, you you you're the next Joan Didion, according to your publicist uh, Swanson. So c congratulations wow. on that. Uh, but. Yeah. Um, you you have you have a uh, one essay in which you 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 meet some some soldiers, and they talk about their post traumatic stress disorder uh, as a consequence, I guess, of Iraq or Afghanistan. But you're suggesting your your entire generation then is suffering from post traumatic stress, and you don't have to have gone to Iraq or Afghanistan to experience this. I, I don't know that I would necessarily say that. Um, that it's a cult, that it's a generational disposition, um, but I, I mean, the, it's it's it would be hard for me to argue otherwise that that 9/11 had indelible effects. I think on the the sort of cultural imagination for sure. I mean that that piece um, 
uh, I had embedded for three months with a group of anti-war soldiers who had started an organic farm and protest community in central Wisconsin and were involved in all sorts of community outreach and community building, really laudable work. Um, but over the course of three months, I began to see that um, they were they were struggling not only financially, but also psychologically. And the founder of that that move, that group, that movement, his name, um, and it has since become a friend of mine, his name is Steve Atkinson, and was suffering from post-traumatic stress in large measure because the narrative, uh, the way that he described it to me was that the narr narrative around military service, particularly this kind of the notion countenancing um, some of the some of the moral injuries that that he that he himself experienced while serving in Sadr City and other parts of Iraq during during the Operation Iraqi Freedom. Well, we are 15 minutes into this conversation with Barrett Swanson about his new book, Lost in Summerland. And I think we've committed the cardinal error of a conversation about books. We haven't defined what Summerland is. Uh, and uh, this word, I think, at least in terms of my reading of the book, came out of the chapter in which you visited uh, or you spent some time thinking and writing about spiritualism and spiritualists at Lilydale, um, about people who, I guess, is it dying or imagine they're dying or passing over in spirit and departing from Summerland? Is that why you called this book Lost in Summerland? Is it lost in a kind of imaginary death because one of the one of the stories is about your kind of imaginary death and your relationship with your brother who also had a near-death experience after getting punched in the face in a bar in in the midwest that's right that's right my brother uh suffered a traumatic brain injury in 2005 um if i'm remembering correctly and became and you know, it's kind of an interesting story then became successful business guy but also a spiritualist yeah, that's well, I, I, I don't know that he would necessarily identify with the religious or the theological uh, tenets of spiritualism as such, but he did have he did purport to have some supernatural experiences and, and, and psychic phenomenon, all of which I about which I was I was pretty dubious. Um, and part of part of the hook of going to Lilydale, which is the, the world's largest encampment of psychics and mediums, they live together in this little gated community and every summer they open up their gates. To, I think like 22,000 tourists across the across the summer, and they do workshops on psychic readings and, and astrology and all, all of the sort of new agey um, uh, uh, phenomena. And so I uh, he he wanted to go, and I went with him. And during the course of that experience, um, you know, we reconnected over some things. But right, so the the term Summerland comes from. The spiritualist religion—it's—it's their—it's um, their term for what what Christians would call heaven or the afterlife. Um, I got interested in some of the thematic parallels between that and what I saw as going on in America, particularly with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, um, when members of the commentariat were calling, uh, uh, were basically saying that democracy had committed suicide with the, with this election, that we had entered a kind of post-hostumous condition that um that we were going that we were entering a kind of american afterlife and that that struck me as terribly interesting not only because of my own uh experiences with suicidal ideation etc 
um, but also because it it seemed it seemed like a a, a fairly accurate account of, of where we were as a country. Um, yeah, this, the, the, this... the spirit of Trump hangs over the book. You say, uh, I'm quoting you here, and you write beautifully, through, through the scrim of 2019, however, it would be difficult for the average park goer to labor under this delusion. After all, just consider our reality TV president. Consider our Boris and Natasha geopolitics. Think about incels and butt implants and Sophia the AI. Is anyone still so canny to suggest that America hasn't become the funhouse version of itself, the Janus twin of the founder's ideal? But um, Barrett, we're back now with Joe Biden, Mr. Everyman, uh, <laughs> president. Um, has that nightmare passed or is it still with us? Is Trump, and this has been a theme we've talked about endlessly, actually, even in the last few weeks, is oh, the... Sure. Um, the uh, the threat, the specter of Donald Trump and his bizarre unreality still hanging over us or the death of America still hanging over us? Well, I think so. I mean, there, there's, I think we're in a kind of a period of um, benevolent abeyance or something. We're in a, we're kind of in a suspension period. And I think a lot of people are tired, but I-, I, I Summerland, I, maybe we should, should just say we're lost <laughs> in Summerland. Maybe, maybe so. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm frightened by some of the developments of late um, regarding uh, the epistemological crisis. I'm, I'm worried about deep fakes. I'm worried about what 2014 will look like. Um, I don't, I don't think that we're at the end of, of, of some of these phenomena. I think they have so thoroughly uh, infected corners of the culture that that they can't help but. Um, persist in some ways. Um, I'm, I mean, obviously, I'm hopeful that, we, that we've that we turned a page here, but um, I think it would be Pollyanna-ish um, to, to, to just uh, persevere in the idea that, we're, that, that all of it's done, that, that that was the closing parentheses. I, I, I just, I, yeah, maybe I'm looking it's- looking for maybe, a word to describe your, your name, Barrett, and I think Pollyanna-ish. So you're clearly, even though you're called Barrett Swanson, you're not Pollyanna-ish. You have an interesting section on men. You have an essay on men. You go to this male camp. Um, and not a lot of women in the book, actually. Your mother pops up from time to time where they give a lot more attention to your father. And you suggest that in the breakdown of the marriage, you took your, 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 your father's side. Are you one of these people who think that men are in particular crisis in America today? You certainly spend time with men who feel they're in crisis and their masculinity is is being somehow undermined by the broader culture and by women? Well, but no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily see it in gender exclusive terms at all. I think that piece in particular, I was, I was um, assigned to go to a, a men's retreat to, to see how certain men were reckoning with toxic masculinity. Um, but, but no, I, I wouldn't, I would, I would characterize it as, as far more, um, a broader, a broader issue, um, particularly, particularly uh, post two thousand eight America, post recession America. Um, how how are we finding meaning in our lives in the wake of those some those tumults and confusion? So, as I said, Barrett, a lot of people have compared you to Joan Didion as a, as an American uh, essayist. You certainly have a lot of style, but you say in the book um, that one of your I don't know if you call it a weakness, um, but whatever you say about yourself, no matter the social context, 
I yearn to be liked. And I would say the difference between you uh, and this book and something like uh, Didion's Slouching Towards Bethlehem, which I just reread, um, is it's almost too likable. You're not offensive and you're writing, and, and this isn't criticism so perhaps so much of you and the work, but of this entire culture, is you're writing for people you know will agree with you. There's no debate. There's no dispute. There's nothing offensive mm. about this book. I, I want you to offend me. Oh, gosh. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm flat. So I just I just finished writing a piece for Harper's. Actually, it comes out um, later this month about TikTok influencers. Um, last September, I spent a long weekend in a collab house. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this phenomenon, but essentially influencers living together and producing content. So these were young people, many of whom had uh, eschewed college, eschewed university life in order to head to LA, live in a staggeringly impressive mansion, something like $30 million mansion, and produce content and, and, and basically become to live their lives almost exclusively online. And I do think that there's a way in which uh, the injunctions of social media and the extent to which influencer culture has infected basically every industry that, that at least I can think of and certainly media industries. I do think that that has created an environment um, in which people are a little bit more calculated or cautious. I'm, I'm surprised that nothing in the book offended you. Um, I wanted to be offended, but it, well, uh, and I'm, sort of half joking uh, in the sense that um, there was nothing in it which I, I think the kind of people who will read this book, the liberal left, the metro metropolitan liberal left will in any way disagree with. Uh, yeah, I mean, the stuff on narcissism you, you talk about, I don't think anyone would disagree. You say at a moment when our culture is fixated on narcissism and the breakdown of communication, uh, there's something dystopian about the book, really. You suggest that America is about to experience, as you say, a period of really deep darkness. Well, I, I don't know if that we're about to experience or the, the well, we are experiencing it, or maybe yeah, we're coming out the other end of it. I certainly think that. I mean, when I was when I was um, at the the collab house in LA um, last fall, ash was raining from the sky. I was at this palatial mansion um, amid every you know yeah. conceivable luxury, and you know the the West Coast was on fire. Yeah, and so I'm, was, I'm in it, San Francisco, so I woke up one day last year, uh, and it was still night, and it remained night all day. Uh, finally, uh, Barrett. Um, in one of your, your essays, the, the Florida essay, when you, uh, uh, I think you go to uh, the Venus Project, which is a, a sort of utopian project in Florida, uh, you talk about uh, we needed a break from the Midwest. Um, but the other thing about the book is it, it's a very white book. It's a very Midwestern book. Uh, there's nothing about cultural diversity. There are no African-Americans or very few African-Americans in the book. Is that coincidental? Do you think you you brought your, your Midwestern sensibility, your culture with you? I'm not suggesting, of course, in any way that it's racist. I mean, that's that would be unfair. But um, 
it's quite different from a lot of the books that we've dealt with on the show. You know, Candice Taylor's book about an overground railway, for example. Uh, Jessica Bruder's book about nomad land. Uh, Kerry Arsenault's book about Milltown. Uh, Dale Maharidge's book, Fucked at Birth. All very good books about America, like yours, but all focusing more on cultural diversity, particularly the African-American question. Mm. Well, sure. I mean, I think that there's a way in which uh, I'm I'm interested. I guess I was looking at narratives that, that that are rooted in my personal experience and using myself as a way to sort of interact with larger cultural narratives that were going on. So most of the essays deal with my own personal experience. Um, but I, I I think that there there are some there are some essays that deal with race in here, and there are also there there are essays that that take a broader um, view in terms of bringing in the conversation, bringing into the conversation stuff about class, stuff about race, stuff about educational opportunity. Um, so th there's the narratives um, really begin with me and then kind of go out from there. Well, certainly there are. Big ideas and knotty questions in Barrett Swanson's first collection of essays, Lost in Summerland. Um, it is a book indeed about America's new reality, the splintering of storylines, uh, story, not storylines, storylines. He writes beautifully and he put up with my fairly obnoxious questions. Uh, congratulations, Barrett, on the book. Everyone needs to read it. You're talking to me from Wisconsin. Uh, even though Joe Biden said we can take off our masks, I think we're still kind of stuck inside. So in addition to your book, your new book, Lost in Summerland, what else should people be reading in these strange times? Although probably in your view, every time in America is strange. Well, sure. Yeah, I I, um, I would recommend uh, for, for more um, of, of trenchant analysis on, on our, our current condition, I would recommend Elisa Gabbard's book, um, The Unreality of Memory, which I have somewhere around here. Um, but I would also well, that's recommend the unreality of memory. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. I would also recommend uh, Brandon Taylor. Uh, his work, I think, is incredible. Um, he has an, a new book out coming out, I think, in August called Filthy Animals that I'm really looking forward to. Um, and also the, the journalism of Alif Batuman, I think, is is first rate. Well, Barrett Swanson, one of America's new talents, excellent writer, wonderful storyteller, and an extremely nice guy. I'm criticizing him for being too nice, but you can never be too nice, really, especially from the Midwest. Barrett, right. good luck, congratulations, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much.